electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. David, thank you for uh, both having us here at the conference and joining me for an interview. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you, David. I have to start by thanking you for being here. I mean, this is a, it's a super conference. We've got over 2,500 investors here for a couple of days, 200 companies, you know, a lot of good dialogue. There's a lot going on in the technology space. And, you know, it's great to be out here. And it's great to have you out here. Yeah, so it's I really great appreciate to, that. Great to both of us fly across the country so we can talk to each other when our offices. <laughs> well, I flew across the country <laughs> to be at the conference and <laughs> talk to a bunch of clients, but I'm delighted to talk to you. I'm too. so glad you're with me as well, David. <laughs> All right. Now that we were uh, laughing a little bit, I, I do want to start off on kind of what I've rarely seen in my career, sort of this highly unusual avalanche of stories focused really, David, on your personality defects. I mean, it's been bizarre. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, New York Magazine. Why, is, why has this happened? Um, you know, I, I can't give you a good reason why it's happened. What I, what I can say to you, David, is it's not fun, you know, obviously watching uh, some of the personal attacks in the press. Obviously, we're a big organization. We're doing a lot of things in the world. And, you know, we should be scrutinized, and we are scrutinized. And, you know, we watch that, you know, that, that scrutiny very, very carefully. I don't recognize the caricature that's been painted of me. I have a lot of colleagues and clients I talk to. They don't recognize that caricature either. And I tell you, a lot of them, particularly my colleagues, are not shy about expressing their, uh, their, their, uh, their personal views. Um, but look, I always reflect on it. You, you always look at it. And we're focused on doing what we're doing. I, I think right. we've made a lot of progress in the last five years, uh, growing the firm serving our clients, executing on the strategy, just, just wonder, and we're, we're going to stay focused on that. Yeah, and I want to, obviously, we're going to talk about that, but, I mean, do you feel, you know, to, you, to your point, it's a rare thing to see these personal attacks. You know, you run a company, like a lot of guys run a company and ladies run companies. I, um, do you think it's an orchestrated uh, campaign of some kind? Is it based simply on the frustration of your partners because they didn't get paid as much in 2022 as they did in 21? Goldman Sachs, a very visible organization. If you go back and you look historically, there have been lots of times where the person sitting in this job uh, has been scrutinized by the press. I'm going through a period where there's been a bunch of scrutiny. As I said to you, I reflect on it. I, you know, try to understand it. Always try to think about ways that, you know, we as an organization and I personally can do better. But we're focused on running the firm. Yeah. This actually isn't what we're focused but, on. I know, but is, does it affect your ability to lead? I mean, you know, David's not likable. He's a tough guy with a short fuse. He dehumanizes you when he talks to you. He doesn't have a personality. I mean, on and on. Like, does that impact your ability to lead? I, I think that I wake up every day thinking about Goldman Sachs, thinking about our clients, trying to move forward. You've known me for a long time. In fact, David, you know, you were asked about this on TV a few weeks ago, and you said you thought I was doing a good job. You thought I was leading the firm effectively. Well, We're I've focused. dealt with you, David, and in fact, you've actually called me and sometimes even taken issue with some things I've said, and I don't get upset about it. In fact, there's one instance, I won't share it, where you were absolutely right. You may remember during the pandemic. Does everybody just have a really thin skin now? They don't like to be talked to in some way that, that, that you talk to them, you know, perhaps that you're just too tough or, or what? David? I wake up every day, I'm focused on our clients, I'm focused on our people, 
I talk to our colleagues, you know, constantly. Um, the characters that, that's, the caricature that's been painted is not one that I recognize. We're focused on running the firm. We're focused on serving our clients. We're focused on growing our business. We're focused on delivering for shareholders. And at the end of the day, that's what we're spending our time on. Right. I, you know, I know, I understand why this is interesting and attractive in the well, media world. Well, this is the world. only time you're going to have to talk about it with me. Okay. But I mean, I figure I, I understand why it's interesting and attractive to the media, but it's not what the people of Goldman Sachs are focused did, on. Did you, does it, does it uh, come, though, from perhaps pushing too much change too quickly? Did you try to evolve things too quickly? Is that sort of part of this backlash? Well, I, I, I do think on, on the substance, we are evolving the firm. Um, and I think it's important. I think companies have to evolve. If they don't evolve, you know, they wind up losing their edge or their competitive position. And so, of course, you know, Goldman Sachs has evolved a lot over the last 154 years, and it will continue to evolve. Um, there's no question. I think some of the noise comes from the fact that we did extraordinarily well in 2021, and everybody benefited from that. 2022 was the first time in over a decade that we had a meaningful down move in compensation. Now it was off 2. of a, 5 billion it less. Was, it was off of a very, very you know, significant high the first year. I think that contributed to it. And then I'd, you know, I'd also say we've made some significant strategic decisions. I think one I'd highlight is we took five or six asset management businesses that were separate businesses and we put them together in a much larger, more powerful platform. We think this is super important for the firm going forward. But that's not an easy thing. And if you're a, a student of the history of Goldman Sachs in the early 1990s, when Fick and Jay Aaron were put together, there was a bunch of tension and a bunch of disruption, and, and people got aggravated during that period. When Hank Paulson asked Lloyd Blankfein to put Fick and Equities together in the early 2000s, there were complications around that and getting those two big businesses closer together. So putting these five or six asset management businesses together, of course, that creates a little disruption. So I think there are things that we're doing um, that are, you know, that are changing the firm, that are important strategically. But I think candidly with investors and with our partners, the strategy is very aligned um, and they think we're doing the right things. But those things can create some noise. But I think, it's, I think it's been amplified in an extraordinary way. We're focused on our clients, getting really, really good feedback from our clients on how we're serving them. I did a dinner on Tuesday night. Course, with but you've got to keep morale up. You've got to obviously also cater to your partners and all your employees. I mean, I just wonder, does this constant criticism pose a risk to your ability to lead the firm? Uh, I'm leading the firm. I'm working with an incredible team on our management committee that's leading the firm. We have 400 partners. By the way, that's something that's unique about Goldman Sachs and actually makes running an organization like this more complicated, that partnership culture. But it differentiates us. I wouldn't have it any other way. Do you ever remind the them they don't actually own that much equity in the, the company? Community, <laughs> the community of the partners is super, super important, both the partners and the former partners. I wouldn't have it any other way. And it's my responsibility to lead the organization forward. And at the end of the day, what matters is performance. And when I look at the body of work over the last five years, we've accomplished a lot. We have more to accomplish. The performance is good. And I think the performance will continue to be good. And I think at the end of the day, if we can serve our clients well, and our clients believe we serve them with excellence, with distinction, with commitment, you know, with effort every day, and we can deliver for our shareholders, we're going to do just fine. And that's what the people of Goldman Sachs are focused on. That's what I'm focused on. Right. Uh, 200 partners have left the firm since you took over. Is that typical? That is absolutely typical. In fact, if you looked at you know, any five-year period, that's roughly in the range. And here's, here's the math, and you and I have talked about this, you know, I think, one other time. We made, in the fall of 2022, the last time we made partners, 80 partners. 
we target now post-election kind of 425 to 435 partners post-election. If we want to make another 80 partners two years from now and keep the partnership the same size, that means 80 partners have to leave over the next two years. So if you, if you do the math just simply, you know, 80 partners times two and a half is 200 partners, and it's not inconsistent with what you would see, you know, in any other period. It's, it's a function of we always make room for new talent, and so if the partnership's a certain size and we want to make a certain number of partners, we have to create that amount of movement over the course of every two-year period. Yeah. Uh, you, you talk about evolution, of course. Something else that has gotten outsized attention in the media, given its size in the firm, is your consumer efforts, which you have scaled back. Um, what have you learned from sort of the decision-making there and trying to build that consumer franchise? Well, we, we accomplished a bunch of things that I think have been very positive for the firm over the course of the last seven or eight years in building a consumer franchise, the most significant of which is we built a very, very big deposit platform. We now have over $130 billion of digital deposits. We're no longer the largest wholesale funder in the world. We fund a significant portion of our business with deposits, and that's been a huge strategic you know, advantage for the firm. We made a decision, you know, six, seven, eight years ago when we started this, seven, eight years ago, to also get into credit, you know, for consumers. And there are a variety of things that have changed where we think that we shouldn't, you know, enter that space as aggressively. And so what are the what are the some I, I think the regulatory environment has changed. I I think that scaling those businesses, you know, in this environment is a little bit harder um, than it might have been in a different environment. And so we made the decision to pair it back. What I hear from most of our investors and shareholders is they admire that we tried something, and they also admire that we quickly made the decision that we didn't think it was working the way we wanted to pair it back and make a change. And so we made a change. Uh, we're very, very focused on our core business of banking and markets, which we've grown really nicely. We're very focused on the asset and wealth management platform. where We put a bunch of things together, and we're growing them nicely. And so, you know, the firm is really focused on those two big platforms. We're making progress in pairing back the consumer activities. And right. There's real alignment. You're going to stay in the credit there's card business, alignment. though, to some extent, right? At, at this point, we're in the credit card business. And Marcus making, stays. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lose my Marcus deposit. savings account. No, you right? have your savings account. And my 4.3% or whatever I'm getting. You're, you have your savings account, and that, you know, that continues. But no checking. Uh, no, no checking. Okay. Uh, no checking. So, although you can, you know, if you're, if you're a private wealth client at Goldman Sachs, you can have checking. And so, um, you know, we'll continue to narrow that, make it profitable. But as you highlight, it's a very small piece of the firm. Yeah. And the core of the firm is what we do in our big muscle group, our core business of global banking and markets, where I think we have the leading franchise. And we've I wanna... strengthened it, we've strengthened it, we've grown it, and we're very excited about the opportunity that we have in asset and wealth management. I wanna talk, let's talk about that, and then we'll get to global markets, and we'll sure. talk about the things that we typically do talk about as well. But, you know, I think there's always been, I've, I've sensed some frustration that you have this growing fee base in alternative assets as well. Um, you are talking about uh, getting the alternative business, or at least this, the fees, over $10 billion in overall management fees for 24, I believe, with about $2 billion from alternatives. Is that being, in your opinion, adequately uh, recognized by investors? Well, I think investors that have been supporting us see the movement that we've made with respect to management fees and also other durable revenue streams across the firm. But with respect to that fee target, we will hit that fee target. That's a fee target that we set uh, when we did our first investor day. We will hit that fee target, my guess is sometime next year, both in terms of the overall management fees and also uh, the alternatives fees. And we can continue to grow from there. At the investor day that we did in February, just a few months ago, six months ago, uh, Mark Nachman 
you know, stood up and said that he thought we could grow this asset and wealth management platform now that we've really got it together and we've got the right focus on it. We can grow at high single digits. We can improve the margin to 25%. Mm -hmm. He also said that 25% for a business like this from a margin perspective wasn't aspirational. So I think over time, as we continue to grow the business, we've got real upside. Is there a point at which, David, you think that you get to a fee number, given the recurring nature of those fees in particular, that your multiples go up? Well, I think if we continue to grow that business, and that business continues to be larger, and the margin structure improves, and we continue our strategic decision to get out of the very heavy balance sheet concentration that we had, which is very, very capital intensive, over time, I think the market will recognize and appreciate that growth and that earnings. And, you know, the firm, firm makes a lot of money, it generates a lot of capital, um, and that should strengthen our position. But I think one of the reasons why the firm has performed well, when you look at our performance over the last three years and five years, is we are reducing the capital density of that business. We are growing that business. We've also grown our core business <coughs> of banking and markets materially and have taken material wallet share and market share um, over the course of the last five years. And so I think we're in a good position to continue to grow the value of the firm. We've grown it meaningfully over the last five years, and we're going to continue to focus on it. As uh, I said earlier, we've accomplished a lot, but we've got a lot more to do. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you mentioned regulatory scrutiny, for example, as well, David, um, in particular in the consumer business, but it extends well beyond that. Um, I wonder, does private credit and the private markets have more allure as <coughs> a result of perhaps lower regulatory barriers? Well, there's no question that over the course of a long period of time, there's been a significant growth in activity, you know, banking activity, including lending, outside of the regulated banking system. If you look at the mortgage market today, a very significant portion of all mortgage activity is outside of the regulated banking industry. There's no question there's significant growth uh, in private credit activity, and that goes on, by the way, in the regulated market, you know, in the regulated industry too. Goldman Sachs has over $100 billion of private credit on our asset and wealth management platform, and it's a big growth area for that part of the business. I think there's going to be good secular growth in private credit activity. I think given the shift in the interest rate environment and the change in the capital markets that we've kind of gone through and the shift that we're experiencing right now, that's obviously making those markets very, very attractive. So I think that's an area where, one, <clears throat> there's real opportunity for players that are private credit players, but there's also real opportunity for an institution like ours that finances all of their positions, mm -hmm. that helps put deals together in that space. And so, you know, there's a tailwind there for us too. Right. So those who would say you're disintermediated by the, by the areas of the Blue House, I mean, I go on, <coughs> on the Blackstones of the world who are providing uh, so much private credit, not the case. Well, we were never, Goldman Sachs, as you know, was never a huge lending bank. No, you have Okay, but, but we you actually, have occasionally your we actually are a bio. huge financer yes. of those clients. And by financing them, you know, that makes, you know, our value to them you know, more important. And so that's a business that we've also grown very significantly over the course um, of the last three to five years. Um, let's talk about uh, M&A and the capital markets. We got, a, we got a big IPO coming next week. You guys are... We do have a big IPO You guys are lead, arm. We have, a few, we have a few IPOs coming over the course. Are you feeling better about things? I, I definitely do feel better about the, the, you know, the capital markets. And if you ask me to, to kind of look ahead, you know, over the course of the next few months, especially if arm and some of these other IPOs, you know, go well... Um, I think you're going to see a meaningful increase in activity. Now, David, it's often anemic, an anemic amount of activity. Yeah, I mean, nothing happened. Nothing. No, no, I mean, it's, it's really investment banking activity. If you go back to the second quarter, investment banking activity in the second quarter was a 10-year low. Yeah. And so it's not hard to improve off of that. But I think we could very quickly 
get back to what I'd call a more normalized level of activity in the capital markets. And that's obviously very, very good for Goldman Sachs. And I see a real improvement. Mm -hmm. I'm quite optimistic about what Is I'm Arm seeing. Is ARM important next week? Well, it's, it's, of course it's important. It's, I mean, super, it's, it's super important deal. to the client. Yes, of course, <laughs> so we're very, a lot. We're very, we're very, very focused on, on executing for the client. But yes, if, if a few of these IPOs go well, it will create you know, a virtuous you know, kind of, of system of pulling more stuff forward. There's a lot of stuff in the backlog. And I think we're going to see an improvement in activity levels over the next four months and into 2024. All right. Now, M&A, of course, again, which you and I have discussed through the years. I mean, the regulatory <coughs> that M&A is under certainly seems to have uh, had a mitigating effect on the willingness of people to announce deals. Is that changing in particular because, let's, uh, for example, the FTC has either lost or settled a couple of high-profile cases? Well, I make a couple of comments on this, David, and, and you're right. There's no question the regulatory environment has had, a, has had an effect, but I've always said that M&A is really derived from the confidence that CEOs feel in the environment. And, you know, it's not surprising. The M&A market was ripping as we came out of 2021 into early 2022, but in February of 2022, there was an event, the war, that kind of changed the sentiment going forward. And also, you know, if you go back to last summer, and you think about where inflation was and what the rhetoric was out of the Fed, you know, confidence levels last summer were very, very low. It's not surprising, given that combination of factors, that M&A activity ground to a halt. It really ground to a halt. Now, of course, the regulatory environment wasn't accommodating, but I think the environment itself was more important in really stopping that M&A activity. So here we are a year later, and, you know, you and I were talking about this a little bit, the economy has been more resilient than people expected. Including perhaps you. Absolutely, including me. I mean, I, I, if I was sitting here a year ago, would have been much more cautious about the chances of recession than I am at this point now. And so CEOs feel better. Their confidence is higher. They're looking forward. And by the way, there have been a bunch of, bunch of cases, you know, where the FTC has lost. And I think the sentiment that I'm hearing from CEOs broadly is, you know, it's time to get back at it. And so this takes time. You can't turn it on right away. People don't decide they want to focus on doing big strategic things on Tuesday and do them on Thursday. But, you know, we were turned off last summer. When I look at the dialogues that are inside our shop, when I look at our backlog, there's definitely a pickup, but that pickup will be slower than the pickup in capital markets activity. Pickups in capital markets activity will lead that. The other thing I'd point to that's important, David, is that the financial sponsor community is a huge part private equity financial sponsor community is a huge part of the ecosystem of capital markets and M&A activity. It turned off for the last year. And one well, thing... It, rates going from, you know, zero to five. Nobody's sold anything. Yeah. And nobody's bought anything. One thing I know for sure, that community makes money when they sell things or they buy things. And so that's going to start up again. And, you know, that also, I think, is a tailwind for more activity. And we're starting to see you know, we're starting to see more activity you think there. We start to see more announcements even in the fourth quarter. Or yeah, is I do, it more, I do, I do think we'll, I do think we'll see more in the fourth quarter. Won't get back to what I'll call normalized in the fourth quarter, but heading in that direction. So quite, I'm I'm quite optimistic about the direction of travel in this activity pickup. Yeah. You know, barring some further disruption, which just doesn't seem likely based on the trajectory. I think one of the reasons why the economy has been so resilient through here is. Um, is the amount of government spending has has kept this economy, you know, going on a more resilient basis than we might have expected. Right. Uh, finally, just a couple of quick other things. Capital rules are coming from the Basel III endgame. 
You know, I know you guys had a relatively muted, at least the way the analysts talked about it, for example, return of capital in terms of buyback. Does that impact uh, how you allocate capital? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think there's, you know, there's a broad issue here that I just, you know, I just want to highlight and give you a couple of thoughts on. You know, first, the amount of regulatory scrutiny or burden that our industry has faced over the course of the last, you know, 10 to 15 years has grown materially. I'm a big believer that we need safety and soundness in the banking system. That's very important. But we also need the banking system to allocate capital in a way that spurs economic activity and growth. When you look at the large banks, I think they've done that very, very well through a variety of different environments over the course of the, um, of the last decade. And I think the U.S. economy has benefited from that. The large banks have been a real source of strength and resilience when there's been some volatile times recently. If you step back and you go back to the financial crisis and the Dodd-Frank reforms that came after the financial crisis, the largest banks have materially increased their capital, significantly increased their liquidity, and significantly decreased their leverage. They go through a very significant stress test every single year. And in addition, we've had some real-life stress tests in the context of the pandemic, Treasury market disruption and other things, and, even the, and they've done the they've done banking crisis we had in the spring done very very well. You know, in the context of that, we think these new capital rules have gone too far. They'll hurt economic growth without materially enhancing safety and soundness. And so, we and I know a number of the other bank CEOs are and bank organizations are expressing that view to the regulators and also to members of Congress. That, there's going to be there's going to be a debate around this and we'll can see. Can you carry the day there though? Do you have we'll, we'll you know, see. I, I don't have, I don't have I don't have the answer but we're expressing a view because we feel strongly about it and um, and you know that'll get debated out. There's a comment period and all these things as you know and so we're commenting. <laughs> All right, I'm hearing it right here, and I, this is going to take years, right? I mean, this, this is, is not take, this is a period. This is going to take a period of time to sort out for sure. Yeah, um, David. Uh, finally, are you ever going to DJ again? I, I'm, um, I'm focused on Goldman Sachs, David, and so, so that means, I'm focused does that on. Does that mean no? I'm focused on Goldman Sachs, David. I'm focused on Goldman Sachs. Um, um, you know, I wake up every day. I'm very lucky to have the privilege of stewarding this incredible company, working with an extraordinary team of leaders through the firm. You know, to move Goldman Sachs forward, to serve our clients. We're very proud of what we do. We're very, very proud of what we've accomplished. And I know we're going to accomplish a lot more. And so that's what we're focused on. And I we're it. going to continue to focus and, and, on finally, it. Finally, though, David, you know, to, you talk about focus. But when you wake up in the morning, you read some of these stories, not that they're going to be any more. Do you focus on yourself as well? Do you say, maybe I could do or relate to people a little differently? Or does that, that's just, you know, you're 61 years old, it's too late. You know, I, I, I said to you at the beginning when we started, David, that, that, I don't recognize the caricature that is, that is painted of me. And when I talk to colleagues and I talk to clients, they don't recognize it either. But that doesn't stop me from reflecting on anything that's said and always trying to think about how I can do better, how I can lead this company better, how I can do you know, better in serving our clients. So of course I do. Um, but that's my job. And by the way, that would be my job, whether there's criticism or not, is to wake up every day and look in the mirror and say, what can I do better for Goldman Sachs? What can I do better for our clients? What can I do better for our people? And even before there was a bunch of noise in the press, that's what I did every day. And so I just keep doing it. Our people will keep doing that. And, you know, I'm just hugely optimistic about the forward for Goldman Sachs. Uh, and I look forward to sitting down with you in future and talking about that. David, thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. It's good to see you, David. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks. thanks for having us at the yep. conference. David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.